Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most important figures in American history of the 19th and 20th century, a person who profoundly shaped the course of our country and profoundly in many ways changed it. Uh, That person, of course, is Susan B. Anthony. And we're going to be talking about her very important um, document, Is it a Crime for a U.S. Citizen to Vote? And to help us talk about that document, to talk about Susan B. Anthony, her life, and how her life and thought shaped America, is our good friend, Professor Natalie Taylor. Natalie is the chair of the Department of Politics at Skidmore College, uh, an expert on American political thought, uh, the U.S. Constitution, and particularly uh, women's contributions in thought and history in shaping America. Natalie, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, let's let's talk about this document. Um, It's probably not a document that a lot of our listeners know. They certainly have heard of Susan B. Anthony, but they haven't necessarily heard of this particular document. Um, Why, in your opinion, is this important? Well, I think there are several reasons why this document is important, uh, both for the United States generally, but then also for the women's suffrage movement in particular. The um, first reason that I would offer is maybe a philosophical reason. If you want, when we have uh, occasion to walk through the document, we are going to see that the document in many ways articulates the fundamental principles of the United States. Hmm. Uh, so it echoes the Declaration of Independence, some of the uh, rallying cries of the American Revolution, and then also offers a view of the Constitution, and particularly as it relates to those natural rights in the Declaration. Right. Um, I would also say that um, while it, you have to work a little bit harder with this document to get this lesson from it, um, it does offer a really instructive uh, glimpse into the amendment process, uh, how challenging uh, it is to mm-hmm. amend the Constitution, and also the the really the sort of careful way in which it has to be done. So it gives us some insight in sort of the fundamental principles of the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. but also the Constitution, too. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Well, let's... And, I, I'm sorry, can no, I go ahead, something? please, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I always emphasize to my students when we are um, talking about the Declaration and then transitioning into the Constitution is the the difference between laying out these philosophical principles and then as we turn to look at the Constitution, we often say that's really about the art of governing men. How do you uh-huh. go about governing? And sometimes the students either collapse the two or sort of see them as really um, very distinct, separate I see. Um, documents that right. maybe serve different purposes. And so I think Susan B. Anthony really tries to connect those two in ways that... Um, that we don't always see. I see. Well, that's actually very important. The document itself is from April of 1873. That's right. So it's just after, or a little bit after the Civil mm-hmm. War. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of the historical background, a little sure. bit of the context of this document. Um, remind us again, we've heard of Susan B. Anthony, mm-hmm. but tell us a little bit about her and her background 
and a little bit of the women's suffrage movement, the desire for the right to vote, mm -hmm. before 1873. Sure. So the uh, we generally mark the start of the suffrage movement in 1848. Uh, Susan B. Anthony's lifelong friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, mm -hmm. uh, called for a women's uh, rights convention, and suffrage really wasn't on the table uh, until the very end. Okay. Um, they, you know, it, it just was too radical, and so... As the uh, convention was wrapping up, they drafted a Declaration of Sentiments, and that uh, document is nearly word for word of the Declaration of Independence. Wow, interesting. Um, they uh, include the word wo women uh -huh. in there where it hadn't been included before, and then the grievances are particular to women's condition in the 19th century. And so uh, the suffrage movement from the beginning, I think, was looking to the American experiment and seeing itself as part of that tradition. Uh, I guess tradition and experiment are kind of... Yeah. Um, and so uh, Susan B. Anthony wasn't there at the time. She was teaching in upstate New York, where Seneca, not too far from Seneca Falls, but she was largely involved in the temperance movement. And what she had come to uh, see was that if temperance was to be accomplished, women would need the right to vote. Oh, that's interesting. So her first concern was temperance or restricting or abolishing the use of alcohol. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she says, if that's going to happen, it's not going to be by men doing it. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so later on, and at the end of the, the, the women's suffrage movement, the, al the uh, alcohol producers, you know, form quite a, an interest group opposing suffrage. And oh, really? That's interesting. <laughs> so, uh -huh. so the, the history of women's suffrage mm -hmm. before 1873, before the Civil War, Yeah. Um, it, I think it's, it might be a surprise to some people, but we know that women had the right to vote, or at least some women had the right That's to right. vote at mm -hmm. the time of the American founding. Yes. Talk about that and how that came not to be. So the, um, you know, as as you know, the Constitution allows states to determine their their voting practices. Right. And so there were some states, I believe New Jersey is probably the um, one that comes to mind right now, that did allow uh, women to vote and had um, other rights. So by the time the Civil War comes, uh, New York, for example, has granted women some property rights. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, there, there. Are, it's uneven, but you know there are some. Uh, there are some examples, and so I think what happens is really uh, following the Civil War, those rights, the property, the suffrage, uh, and others start to get rolled back, and that's where I think that Susan B. Anthony's arguments start to shift, and so she really comes to understand that it can't just be a means to other ends. Uh, that suffrage is uh, primarily important for the sake of one's stature as a citizen, as part of uh -huh. as part of a, a polity. So there's a kind of evolution in her thought from yeah. before the Civil War to after the Civil War. Yeah, I think so. I mean, she had um, she saw some of the rights that had been gained prior to the Civil War get rolled back, mm -hmm. and so she saw that they were really pretty insecure. The other thing that I think was really, and you can see some, and this, um, we can look at it in the document um, in a bit, but I, I think one of the other really important factors was the change of the politics uh, in, after following the Civil War, the abolitionists had been sort of on the uh, fringe of 
political right, life. They've right. been sort of raising consciousness. But then all of a sudden they have a, an opportunity to really bring about changes and be part of reconstruction in a way. Um, and then that meant the, the women's rights advocates sort of lost their stature. They had given abolitionists kind of some respectability, you know, uh, middle see. class uh, white women and uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, the moral authority. And then uh, there had to be a decision made. Were they going to pursue the rights of freed men uh-huh. or were they going to pursue universal rights? And um, practically speaking, many of the the leaders wanted to pursue the rights of the freed men first. I see. So women, interesting. So women's suffrage uh, or the rights of women more broadly to hold mm-hmm. property, to serve on juries or any testifying court, whatever sure. the particular right was, that was gaining ground before the Civil War. Yeah. It's, and then, at, interesting, as you say, after the Civil War, you might think, well, obviously it's going to take off even more. Yeah. And that's not, in fact, what happened. No, and I think and, and I think Susan B. Anthony was sort of struck by that, right? She hmm. maybe naively she thought, okay, now we're all going to pursue universal suffrage, right? And because in 1870, the Fifteenth Amendment is passed. That's right, guaranteeing people the right to vote regardless mm-hmm. of their race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then this document yep. comes three years after the Fifteenth Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, April of 1873. Talk a little bit about the background and context of this document which is called it's a question is it a crime for a u.s citizen to vote mm-hmm. that's a pretty provocative title sure yeah so so um following the passage of the 15th amendment uh that really closed the doors for women's suffrage uh there was some expectation as i mentioned immediately following the civil war that women would uh, move ahead with suffrage the 14th Amendment was passed. It introduced the, the word male into the Constitution three times, no less, where it had not existed uh-huh. prior to. Okay. And that's the, in 1868? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're the, you know. <laughs> um, um, and so then they thought, well, the 16th Amendment. So there, there's sort of a strategic question they have to, right. to pursue. The 15th Amendment will have to now correct what the 14th and amendment has introduced and um that didn't happen you know she had advocated that they simply add sex into the reasons why a citizen's right to vote can't okay. be abridged right and there wasn't the momentum to do that and so uh she's sort of stuck in 1872 without a strategy Right. Mm. The all the avenues to to a constitutional amendment, a you know, quick solution, seemed to be closed to her, and so her thought was that she would try to assert the right of women's constitutional right to vote on the basis of the Fifteenth Amendment, and and she did so on the basis that women are citizens, and so mm. I think that's where the title comes from, to be provocative, um, she. It, the 1872 election, she just went down around the corner from her home and she cast a ballot. And uh, she was eventually arrested a few weeks later. So it wasn't, it was a crime. It was. She was arrested for it. She faced, uh, a, she faced a trial and was 
found guilty. And so she was voting in a, a state election or a local election? National, national election. A national election. election that okay. year. So yeah. she tried to vote in a national election. She wrote, yep. The state of New York at that time did not allow women to vote. No. Mm -mm. And in fact, obviously, they made it a crime for yep. women to attempt to vote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She goes down, she tries to vote, she is arrested. Mm -hmm. In response... We have this document. Yeah. So in in this res uh, in in response to this, she's this is, I believe is a, a published version, but she you know traveled the state delivering a, an oral version as well, and she mm -hmm. really saw this as an act of education to uh, educate women, but also men. They would be ultimately be the ones that would have to. Uh, decide the question of women's suffrage as they were already voters, right? And how um, in the in uh, the principles of the Declaration and and I think as I mentioned earlier the Constitution and uh, how it was consistent. So um, so if you don't mind, let's just yeah. take a look at this document for a minute and let me just start reading a little bit at mm -hmm. the beginning. Um, it's it's just such an interesting reflection on, as you say, applying the principles of the Declaration of Independence to a legal constitutional question. Sure. All right, let me read. Our democratic republican government is based on the idea of the natural right of every individual member thereof to a voice and a vote in making and executing the laws. We assert the province of government to be to secure the people in the enjoyment of their unalienable rights. We throw to the winds the old dogma that governments can give rights. Before governments were organized, no one denies that each individual possessed the right to protect his own life, liberty, and property. And when a hundred or a million people enter into a free government, they do not barter away their natural rights. They simply pledge themselves to protect each other in the enjoyment of them. That sounds like Thomas Jefferson. Or, or uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the first few paragraphs of the Declaration, right? Uh, and which is also a, an echo of a larger, more sustained philosophical treatise in John Locke's second treatise, right? It's, yeah. Um, it offers us a condition of human beings outside or prior to government, the reasons they would form those governments, and um, what their natural condition is. Um, my favorite line in what you read is, we throw the old winds of the dogma that governments can give rights. Yeah. You know, that, Why does she include that, that sentence in there? Well, I think this, you know, this is actually um, my pet peeve, Jeff, when my students talk about the government giving us rights, right. and particularly yeah, yeah. women's suffrage, like women were given suffrage, and I think, you know, maybe I've read Susan B. Anthony one too many times. <laughs> Those are, uh, and we'll, we'll see in the rest of the document how she justifies this. But it's uh, our natural rights are, are, are inalienable and we're endowed with them. And we, uh, we compromise those only insofar as the government uh, needs us to in order to live peaceably together. So the Declaration says that to, to secure these rights, mm -hmm. governments are instituted among men, not right. to give these rights. That's right. And they don't possess any and all political power and... And governments don't compromise that and hand out the the rights, um, in a you know according to necessity or, or whim. And what's interesting to me is she follows right up on, well, uh, with what you were saying before, because then she brings in the Constitution. Sure. And you might say, well, look, that's the Declaration of Pendants. Mm -hmm. That's pie in the sky ideals right. of Thomas Jefferson. That's not the document that actually governs us legally, mm -hmm. constitutionally. Mm -hmm. She goes on to say. 
nor can you find a word of any of the grand documents left us by the fathers that assumes for government the power to create or to confer rights. The Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution, the constitutions of the several states and the organic laws of the territories all alike propose to protect the people in the exercise of their God-given rights. Not one of them pretends to bestow rights. That's right, yeah. So she's saying, in our struggle for the women, women's right to vote, we are not asking you to give us a right. We are asking you to recognize a right that we have from, as the Declaration of, of Independence put it, the laws of nature and a nature's God. That's right. That, that it's, they're inherent and um, part of the, what it means to be human, give human dignity. And so it, it's um, an acknowledgement of that. So she wants the law to change to what she... This is, again, I can see the connection to abolitionism, mm -hmm, right? Sure. So ab an, uh, an abolitionist like Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass in particular, made clear, we are not asking you to give us freedom. Mm -hmm. We already have freedom. We're asking you to remove the law that uh, wrongly enslaves our freedom. Right, That wrongly right. violates our mm -hmm. freedom. That's the same kind of argument, it looks like, that Susan B. Anthony's making. Absolutely. And... So the, the question I think that comes up and almost immediately in the, the document is how you, uh, the government is going to, is to protect these rights. Mm -hmm. And so I think as she hones in on the question of consent as the way to see that, to, to make that transition from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution, uh, that the there's a sort of a philosophical problem, you know, that Jefferson thinks about it uh, and other others do too about, you know, what does it mean for people who are now living in the United States as it's approaching its centennial right. to consent to a government yeah. that they weren't a party to the formation of. It's easy to say we consent in 1776 because sure. we're there. Right. Well, I'll sign my name. Right. 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 But it's not so easy for subsequent generations. And so she ties voting to consent. Okay. And so the act of voting is what, uh, you know, serves as the consent to the governing. That's really interesting. So because the declaration says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted mm -hmm. among men. And she says, yes, I agree. It's not to give us rights. We're not asking you to give us rights. We're just asking you to, to let us exercise a right we already have. And we have that right because, as the declaration says, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Right. We, the governed, we women are governed. If we are governed, we have to consent to the government that governs us. Mm -hmm. And that would be done. That's the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, what's her argument against people who at the time were saying, um, your husband can consent for you? Yeah. So the... Um she she sort of leaves that off rhetorically at least um in much of the doc much of her writings and her speeches after the civil war but that was a big question prior to the civil right. war and uh it it as i'm thinking about it it really comes up a lot largely around temperance and okay. Uh, when women are really kind of financially and sometimes physically vulnerable to their husbands who are drinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's a little easier to point out that the interest of a husband and an interest of the wife might diverge in those cases. And so she um, 
she she along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton who I think had a little bit sharper tongue than Susan B. Anthony had you know sort of rhetorically said well then start doing it you're not you know peel back the um, property limitations allow women to you know hold their own property mm -hmm. you know stop the uh, allowing for the production of alcohol and uh, that would be in women's interest right so if you're going to advance if you say mm -hmm. men are protecting women's interests then yeah. you should act like it yeah and one uh, one way to for to be sure that women's interests are protected mm -hmm. is to give women the right to vote or to give women the right to hold property or yeah. all, of, all of those things. Right. But this argument, as you say, here in 1873, mm -hmm. it looks like it's gone beyond that position. It looks like it goes on to say, if we believe in the principle of self-government, it's not just self-governing, governing ourselves as individuals, mm -hmm. but it's also governing ourselves as citizens of this country. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so she, um, she has really kind of... T uh, two arguments that are at work and I think really are addressed to the politics of the time. One, this more aspirational language about completing the the Constitution in some way by right. securing the right to women to vote or one half of the population, as she always likes to remind us. Yes. Uh, and then I think she also has a sort of a, a practical side of it, too, um, knowing now, I mean, and this ties into the other reason why I think this is a, an interesting document, knowing now that they have, uh, the United States has added, I don't know how many more male voters, it right. just makes the persuading male voters to pass a, a, or ratify an amendment for women's suffrage that much more difficult. Right? Ah. So she um, both appeals to the you know during this time period more generally um, appeals to the the principles of the declaration but then also uh, wants to make sure that she you know sees that um, she can try to avoid another amendment yeah another right. 16th 17th right because she thinks so I'm going to try yeah. and establish women's right to vote on the constitution yeah. that exists right now That's rather right. than have to fight to get another amendment right and this is that argument. Yeah. But how would how does she deal with it? I noticed this in the mm -hmm. piece where she talks about the preamble of the federal constitution. Yeah. And it, it, which are very famous words, probably mm -hmm. very familiar to our listeners. We, the people of the United States, mm -hmm. in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. She quotes it in the speech here. Right. And, but how does she respond to people who say, look, we the people in 1787 when the constitution was first formed, that meant we the white male property owners. And that's in fact an argument that we hear today mm -hmm. from, sure. from a lot of people. That's sure. what it meant. And if it meant that, then it meant that women were not in, supposed to be included. Mm -hmm. How does she respond to that argument? Uh, well, so I think drawing attention to the preamble's a, a good clue. Uh, so she's shifted now from is it a crime for a citizen to vote to basically asking are women people, hmm. right? You know, and, and the we answer, the people. Yeah, so that's got to be true. Um, 
I think that she does hear that argument and her response is probably one we should all adopt that the failures of the Constitution or the men governing are not the failures of the principles, hmm. right? And she says, we have these American ideals, they are worthy, and um, they will gain us justice if we live up to them. We don't throw away the ideals because we don't have suffrage. And this is why she goes on to say, it was we the people, not we the white male citizens, yeah. nor yet we the male citizens, mm -hmm. but we the whole people who formed this union. Mm hmm so she wants to say, no, in fact, it was the principle is everyone must consent to the government that they live under, every adult. Yeah. And w obviously women are adult human beings. And so they have to be part of the, as you say, they're part of the people. If the founders didn't fully recognize this or apply this, or at least people in the founding generation sure. did not, mm -hmm. it was the left to the states, the as states, you said. right. Yeah. People in the states did not see this. Um, it's up to us now to bring this f finally to fulfillment. Yeah, and I think she understands what's at stake. Uh, so those uh, people, and there were some really fine, intelligent, moral people who held the position that, that, that universal suffrage wasn't appropriate at the time, she saw that that would lead to further compromises on suffrage. If, if you look down just in the middle of the page, mm. um, she says, if we would once establish the false principle that the United States citizenship does not carry with it the right to vote in every state in this union there's no end to the petty freaks and cunning devices that will be resorted to to exclude one and another class of citizens from suffrage and so you know in some ways she's right you know we had um jim crow as a consequence right, of right. you know not uh being strong enough on the question of suffrage. If right? you don't accept, her argument is, so that's, so I see. So her argument is, if you don't accept the principle of universal, universal suffrage, suffrage for yeah. everyone, then it's easy for any majority to just kind of take the vote away from anyone they want to take mm -hmm. the vote away from. So if you're a male and you're hearing this, she might say to you, you're not, your vote is not secure unless women's votes are secure. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of Lincoln saying to his often white audiences, your natural rights are mm -hmm. not secure unless everyone's natural rights are secure. Right. Mm -hmm. And she, so she uses that same kind of argument. That's right. I think so. And, and she was, uh, I, I would argue she's right about that. Um, you know, both historically, if we look back and we see that there had been efforts to, uh, prevent others from voting and, uh, you know, on, on the basis of principle as well. And she, goes on to say or suggest she quotes judge justice roger tawney's mm -hmm. the dred scott decision mm -hmm. this is really interesting to me this is that infamous decision in 1857 which said that african americans an african cannot be a u.s citizen an african cannot be an american mm -hmm. um and we're not part of the people who formed the constitution at the time of the american founding right and we know abraham lincoln disputed that very vigorously and said yes they were and yes they are yes everyone is supposed to be covered by these principles as we go forward in our history um she seems to want to equate denying women the right to vote under the existing constitution to that dred scott decision yeah i mean i think it goes back to the point that you made a few minutes ago that if uh if we look to to insist that it was only 
the white men in the room that drafted the Constitution who they really had in mind. It means those principles are true in 1776 in Philadelphia, but that they aren't universal and they mm. don't transcend place and time. Right. And so um, I'm not going to line up with Judge Tawney on that, right? I, I, yeah. I, I think that... Um, and her hearers, her readers and her listeners would say, no, we're not with Ta Roger Tawney. Yeah. That was an infamous Supreme Court decision, maybe the worst Supreme Court decision ever made. We don't want to be in that camp. Yeah, well, I, I guess I would leave it to you wonder and wonder um, the reception of it. You yeah. know, I mean, it's it's relatively short. Um, you know, she's still trying to educate people a little bit on the principles and remind them of it. In some, so in some ways, you might see it also as a correction of, of Tawney. Let me ask you this. This mm -hmm. speech, yeah. as, you, as we were just talking about, invokes yeah. the principles of, of the Declaration of Independence, mm -hmm. invokes the principles of self-government of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. It says the Constitution we have right now is good enough and should be interpreted mm -hmm. as protecting the right of women to vote it doesn't persuade people no it doesn't um she and you see she shifts her argument too right it's it's really an argument about the 15th amendment she shifts it to she so she's you know think of it this way if you want right that it's the principles of the constitution or if you can't go along with that here's a second argument you might like and she argues that um Women are a class of citizens that are identified in the 15th Amendment, those who have been subject to previous servitude. Ah. And so um, then she goes through and she makes the argument uh, that, you know, drawing on what de the definition of, of slave, that uh -huh. women have, have fit that definition. Essentially been enslaved yes, by the law. That's right. Okay. It's a bold, it's a radical argument. Mm -hmm. It's a bold argument. It's a provocative argument. Mm -hmm. Um but it doesn't win women the right to vote. No, um, it doesn't even, yeah, she's, she, her case doesn't go to the co Supreme Court. She had hoped that it would and uh -huh. okay. get the court to rule on it. Right. Um, but I don't know, through some technicality, she's denied her right to appeal. And so she, uh, but there are others who were voting that day too. And they did go, th another case had made it to the Supreme Court and the the court ruled in Minor versus Haberset that uh, the United States denies citizens of all the time the right to vote. You know, minors. Um, I see. You know, and goes through the list, and so that it would be constitutional to deny women the right to vote. All right. After that Supreme Court decision, it's really deflating. Yeah. What ha what's what's the aftermath of Susan B. Anthony's efforts here in 1873? What happens? Tell us the story, I think, of the women's suffrage movement after this very important speech. Yeah, so this is in 1873, um, and then the suffrage uh, amendment doesn't get passed until 1920. Wow. So um, Almost 50 years. Yeah, I mean, she was, okay. so she sort of understood what was going to happen, and, and, and it did. Um, so she really takes a step back from activism and she starts to write a history of the woman's suffrage movement. She once made quipped that she, you know, she didn't like it. Um, she said she likes to make history. She doesn't like to write history, <laughs> but I think she might uh, have um, overstated how different those two things were. I mean, she's really mm. a remarkable uh, set of, of volumes. She, along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and a third woman, Matilda Gage 
write the basically the history of women's suffrage and in that way she makes a tra gives a tradition of women's suffrage i see she she presents a picture of a unified movement um and then really inspires the next generation and this is taking place in the, the latter half of the 19th century there's it's referred to as the doldrums uh -huh. uh, it doesn't really start to pick up again until the early 20th century when there's a new generation of women that are coming into the movement to accomplish what, what she hadn't been able to. And are those younger women? Mm -hmm. And in fact, my grandmother actually rallied. Is that you know, right? She was a suffragette who rallied oh. in Muskegon, Michigan awesome. uh, for, for women's right to yeah. vote uh, in 1918. Oh, But perfect. this younger generation yeah. of women, did they recognize Susan B. Anthony as an inspiration or had people forgotten about her? Oh, no, they remembered her. She was very clever. I mean, partly because, you know, the hero of that history was Susan B. Anthony. Uh -huh, she wrote it. Yeah, and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the movement had been unified under under them. She also sort of reinvented herself, as we say today, right? She, she had been, um, you know, a, a, a matronly woman. She had been single. She, you know, was sort of severe. And she reimagined herself and represented herself as Aunt Susan. The younger uh -huh. generation couldn't quite call her Miss Anthony, but they didn't want to just call her Susan. So they called her Aunt Susan. And, and so she sort of really became the, um, you know, the mother of the movement. And mm. so she, unfortunately she died in 1906 and didn't see suffrage accomplished. But her, um, her protege, Carrie Chapman Catt, uh, you know, did accomplish it, and uh, arguably, it was uh, her political savvy that got it done. And um, just before it was called the Anthony Amendment, and just huh. prior to its publication, uh, its ratification, Carrie Chapman Catt gave a speech in Congress, and um, she said, you know, as soon as the words of the Declaration were written, it was it was all but inevitable. Well, that's what that. In my mind, this document and the arguments that it makes really does raise the question that you've kind of alluded to here. How does this document help our understanding of the founding mm -hmm. and of its principles mm -hmm. and how they would shape the course of American right. history? Yeah, and, and arguably world history, right? World history. These, these uh, as Jefferson already knew in, in the early part of the 19th century, uh, they, these ideas are there for all now, and once they're 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 out there, people will make will avail themselves of those ideas and take those ideas. A person like Susan B. Anthony, take those ideas, articulate them anew for mm -hmm. a new situation before and then after the Civil War. Right. Inspire people with those ideas, and have those ideas advance to really fulfill the American idea. Mm -hmm. That's her understanding. Yeah. 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 Wow. And it and so in a way it doesn't I mean and this is sort of echoes Carrie Chapman Katz's piece it really doesn't matter what Jefferson thought right you know because thinking about your comment that you know we often hear the criticism today that these men didn't intend for this right who cares the principles yeah, were the, the principles, principles and it's yeah. our time now Susan That's B right. Anthony thought mm -hmm. to fulfill those principles That's right mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you for this really interesting wow, look. Well, it was a lot of fun. Into I the mind being of here. Yeah, thank you because it's a, such an interesting and, and great look into the mind of someone we've all heard of. Yeah. But probably didn't understand mm -hmm. as much about her thought 
and how it borrowed so much and owed so much to the founding, but then went on, of course, to shape America's future. Yeah, I think so. We, we often forget how central the founding was to the movement. Thank you very much yeah, for joining thank us, you Natalie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash American Idea Pod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AM Idea Podcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickenberg.